HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Thanks for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. You are listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks. We are coming to you live from the back of Roberta's Pizza in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today we are looking to go beyond the peel. Uh, we're going to talk banana. We're going to talk banana revolution. Um, we are on the line with Nicole Vitello from Equal Exchange. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thanks, Aaron. Pleasure to be here. So, you know, bananas are one of those kind of u- ubiquitous fruits in the U.S. I know it's one of the rare um, produce items you can find at almost any bodega here in New York, um, all throughout Brooklyn. And one of those foods that I think we don't often think too much about, we kind of take for granted that, that bananas are everywhere, that they're cheap and, and that they're super accessible, but uh, they don't grow in the U.S. Um, and I wanted to kind of use this Use, uh, use this time with you to get a sense of um, the banana story. So maybe you can uh, kick us off uh, by giving us a little bit of a sense of uh, the banana, the banana history, and and where the, where these roots are coming from, and what are some of the things we should be thinking about that we're not. Absolutely, uh, and I think you're absolutely right that the um, the banana has sort of been designed uh, to kind of avoid the connection, I think, between farmer and consumer. Uh, the, the banana history is kind of a long and sorted one. Uh, the banana companies were, were definitely the original multinationals. Uh, they owned the land where the bananas were produced, the means of production, rail systems, boats, canals, and then the uh, sort of trucking and warehousing to get them all across the United States. So it was the original multinational and sort of the original vertically integrated company. And as we know, the, the sort of there are five multinationals that control 75% of banana production still in the world today. And 
those they're commonly known. You know, when people I think think bananas, they sort of think Dole, Chiquita, Bonita, Del Monte. Um, Turbana is a little less known in, out of Colombia. And those were the names that people associated with their bananas, not where they came from, who grew them, how do people live in the places where bananas are grown. Certainly as an American consumer, I never experienced that, and I think that was somewhat intentional because the story isn't a very attractive one. Um, often producers and people growing the bananas themselves were living in pretty abject poverty under some pretty distressful environmental conditions, and that did does affect their quality of life. And so when we sort of talk about the cheap banana, it, it's definitely only cheap for some people, um, which is an interesting, uh, an interesting paradigm. But I, I find a, a book that I found particularly helpful is, is called Bananas, and it's by Peter Chapman. And it gets into the history of United Fruit. It's, it's a very readable uh, book. Um, it's not overly academic, and it kind of takes us through the, the history from sort of the late 1800s into probably about the 1950s around uh, the, these large, large banana companies and how they did do business and how they affected government and how they were tied to the U.S. government and a lot of our trade policies uh, and often military interventions were designed around that. So the banana revolution that we talk about, um, I think, certainly means different things to different people. Um, but it's the, it is a long, it's a long story. And I think finally now you're starting to see Maybe some loosening of the uh, of the hold of these large companies over banana production, and some of that has been with the advent of organic, and certainly with the advent of organic fair trade. So, can you give us a sense? I know for you know my generation and probably my parents' generations, bananas were definitely kind of had a place at the table, but I know historically they haven't always been here. I mean, when when did they kind of start becoming so commonplace in, in the American marketplace? Well, I think it's uh, somewhat with technology allowed... Uh, you know, formerly bananas, you know, they're grown um, in many areas of the world. India and Brazil are are very prevalent in banana growing, but most of it is for domestic consumption. So for us here in the U.S., um, our proximity to uh, Central and South America and the advent of refrigerated technology and uh, the ocean vessels that were designed to carry bananas um, were was definitely... Uh, the only thing that allowed bananas to get here in the condition that they are. Bananas are a really weird product. They're A, they're a genetic clone, so they are, you can only produce them from the plant basically produces uh, a daughter plant and then a granddaughter plant, and those, the, the plant is constantly reproducing from itself. So that already is, is kind of strange, particularly when you talk about organic production, because the plant can't evolve to uh, combat anything that's evolving to attack it. Insects are evolving, diseases, you know, fungal and bacterial diseases are evolving, but the banana clone itself is not. So that's already an issue. They're grown in a monocrop area. It tends to just grow bananas, which again, you know, adds to some hardship in trying to produce them. But the technology around them, I mean, both They basically get harvested uh, in countries. Our our bananas come from Ecuador and Peru, which is a lot of organic, and certainly a lot of organic fair trade comes out of those two countries. Um, They get cut and processed. They basically get washed and packed uh, 
and the, the banana boxes are specifically designed. Uh, they get on a, a boat. It takes about 9 to 11 days for them to arrive in the U.S. They're in a refrigerated container. They stay at 58 degrees the entire time. They get to the U.S. They go to produce ripeners. They go into ripening rooms. The temperature is slowly raised. The humidity is raised, as well as ethylene gas is uh, emitted throughout the ripening rooms. The air is forced into uh, the boxes, which have holes on either side, so that they ripen evenly. I mean, it's, it's basically an amazing process and sort of a man-over-nature kind of process in order for us to get this perfectly shaped, perfectly formed, you know, so many inches, perfect curvature, yellow banana on the shelf 365 days of the year, and all generally under 99 cents a pound, which is pretty amazing. I mean, I, I can't think of any other product that actually trades that way. Yeah, let's back up a little bit so we can get a, a, a bit more of an understanding of the actual banana, you know, plant. You did say they were cloned. So let's say that, you know, I wanted to move to Peru and, and start a banana farm. Is that just like a crazy thing? Or what would that look like, um, you know, from the beginning stages? Well, no, Peru, and Peru is a perfect example because often in other places, you know, there are products, you know, like tea or bananas, um, they, when they come into fair trade, you're coming out of sort of a colonial or a multinational legacy. So you're dealing with large plantation areas, and it's pretty hard to, uh, to imagine being a small farmer or owning your own land or starting a small banana farm. It's like you have to be a certain volume in order to trade in bananas, and you have to be a certain volume in order to reach the outside world. So say you are in Peru, which is a perfect example, because the government there took over a large uh, area of land in the north, uh, close to the Ecuadorian border. It's, it's almost a desert, uh, and it's a very dry climate, which is good for organic production. And the land was distributed to individual small farmers. So each farmer might have, say, you know, two to five acres of land, and yet the land is all contiguous. So all these farms are right next to each other. So you own your own land. You plant your banana trees, which would come from a, a, a cutting that was formed that formed a seedling. That is one variety of banana. It's called the Cavendish variety. Uh, it is the only variety that we get here in the U.S., whether it's Dole or Chiquita or us or anybody else. It's all the Cavendish variety. It might be produced organically or conventionally. Uh, and basically, that plant um, takes about a year to grow. And then, as I said, it will, it will bear, you know, one giant bunch of bananas, which will be about 100 pounds. And when that bunch is forming, it's covered in a, a sort of a plastic bag. Now, if it's conventional production, that plastic bag will be impregnated with all sorts of uh, pesticides and uh, to avoid any insects getting in there and scarring the bananas or harming them in any way. And the fields will often also be aerially sprayed for other types of uh, fungicides or herbicide or um, so it's it, like I said, it's, it's pretty bad for the climate and the people working under those conditions. But so you've planted your little banana patch, and it would take some time to produce. But then it's you're managing your harvest. So each of those trees, which you know, the banana is actually a giant herb, which is interesting. Also, 
is going to produce at a different rate so you could manage your production. And now you band together with all your local, you know, the people in your area growing bananas, you form potentially a cooperative, and then together you have volume to export for the international market. And that's sort of the fair trade model um, in that small farmers are organized into co-ops, they have volume to export, and the co-op gets paid each week for their bananas, and they distribute the money to the, to the producers themselves. Now, I want, so I want to back up. I have a few kind of questions uh, along that, that chain. Why, why is it that there's just this one breed? And, and, you know, knowing kind of what I know about other agricultural models, that seems incredibly kind of risky. And I wonder how that, uh, you know, where that history comes from and, and why there is just kind of this one type. Right, and that's another, um, if people are interested in that, there is another great book called Bananas by Dan Kopel, and he, and this sort of kind of raised the idea that, uh, banana, you know, the banana could potentially get wiped out. Uh, and this did happen in the, uh, in the early, I'd say about 1930s, and I have to check my, uh, date on that, but there, there was one variety of banana, and it was called the Big Mike, or the Gros Michel in French, and it was, uh, the banana variety that that was exported out of Central and South America. It was completely wiped out by Panama disease. And it literally, it just killed, it, it, often because the way bananas are irrigated, they're, they're flood irrigated, and water is a huge vector for disease. So it carried the disease from plant to plant, and the, all the banana trees literally, like, turned black and shriveled up and, and died. And so this was a huge loss to these giant multinationals trading in bananas, who generally at that time were only trading in bananas. Now you see sort of Dole and Chiquita do salad mix and all sorts of other things. But this was really mainly bananas at the time. So people scrambled to come up with another variety. But the reason the banana is particularly difficult is because it, it doesn't really have a seed. So it's not like you can just take this variety. I mean, now you're into sort of genetic cloning and trying to develop a new variety of banana that not only will survive, but will survive these these pretty weird conditions we're forcing the banana to be in, right? Perfectly shaped bunches, needs to stay in a container for four weeks at a static green state before it gets ripened, um, needs to be sweet and a dessert variety. I mean, there are plenty of banana varieties out in the world. It's a subsistence crop in much of Africa, um, but it, that's not a sweet dessert banana, not the banana that we know here in the U.S. market. So it's pretty challenging, and that book does a really good job. I think there was actually an article in, um, I want to say, like, Sever Magazine and, and the New York Times a couple years back with some some uh, more brief editions of Dan Copel's book, and he has a blog, too, and it's definitely gotten uh, raised people's awareness around, wow, the banana is, you know, the fact that people even ever think about how bananas are grown or where they come from or who's growing them you know, again, the system was never designed to link farmers and consumers. So um, we're going to talk a little bit more into that farmer-consumer link in the second half of the show. But I have a few more kind of technical questions. How, how tall is a banana tree? Well, it, it varies on the climate. Um, we have noticed, like, the banana trees we saw uh, when we were visiting the producers we purchased from in Peru were generally shorter and stockier because it's, um, it, it, it's a pretty bright, dry desert climate. When we were in Ecuador, which is much more tropical and 
mixed in terms of you might have some places like mountain farms where they're growing uh, cocoa and citrus and bananas, uh, that the trees were very, very tall. Um, and in that neighborhood, they might be like, you know, 20 feet tall. In Peru, they might have been like 10 or 11. So it definitely varies depending on the climate. So you had mentioned that as the bananas are growing, they're each kind of bunch is covered with a plastic, kind of a plastic bag. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Um, so obviously, it's very kind of labor intensive. If, if each kind of tree needs to be, you know, covered covered with this bag, how do do people just get on a ladder and hop up there? Or absolutely, yeah. There's like a handmade wooden ladder. And if people are interested, on our website, as you mentioned at the beginning, beyondthepeel dot com, there are a couple of videos that show sort of that we shot ourselves down uh, in Peru that shows sort of banana production. And the there's a really great uh, agricultural technician who kind of explains how the bananas, you know, there's a lot of work. Uh, it, it, almost like if you consider sort of fruit trees here in the U.S., there's a pruning process, there's fertilization, there's weeding. Um, you know, you really need to keep, in order for organic production, it is sort of, as like here, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You need to keep weeds down around the plant, debris away from the plant. They're irrigated. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of work that goes into it. And often these family farms, it's a, it's a full-time job. I mean, when you get to harvesting, there's, there's the money part of it. But the, um, the labor part of it is, is all year long. Wow. Um, so we are on the line with Nicole Vitello of Equal Exchange. We're talking about bananas. Uh, I'm already. <laughs> I want to get beyond the the beyond the peel for bananas. Um, hang tight. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back. We're going to talk a little bit more about those farmer to consumer linkage. <laughs> This is the story of men. This one's Blazing Fish Cakes by Rectech on Heritage Radio Network.org. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery. In our industrial world, most wines have become brands, but the wines I love are so much more. Fine wine is a civilizing substance that connects us to nature. It cannot be stamped out in a factory. If you're listening to this great show, you probably eat different. I urge you to drink different too. Go deeper. Cane5.com All right, we are back. Thanks for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to the Farm Report. We are talking bananas. We're on the line with Nicole Vitello from Equal, Equal Exchange. Man, I got a lot of tongue in my mouth today. <laughs> Nicole, so, um, you know, you guys have this great video on your website, uh, com, where there's a woman dressed up as a banana um, doing kind of a, a taste test, and she has two bananas on her 
sitting in front of her and people come up to the table and she's like, oh, can you tell the difference between those bananas? And, and people kind of taste and they go back and forth. They're like, oh, maybe this one's a little sweeter or this one is a little riper. But the, the story of that taste testing is actually, you know, not so much about the actual flavor of the banana, banana in their mouth, but the story uh, behind each of those bananas. So I was hoping maybe you can break down for us the ways that an equal exchange banana is going to be different than the banana I'm probably buying at my local bodega. Yeah, and, and that's a really good point. I think the biggest challenge in the work that we do is is distinguishing this banana as different, uh, right? You know, I mean, the local food movement has had amazing success in differentiating heirloom varieties or specialty varieties or the, the sustainability around what they're growing. But this banana, it's the same variety that every other importer is importing from big to small. And it's, you know, it's grown organically, yes, which is one distinction. But the difference behind how do you explain fair trade and how that's important uh, around bananas is, is a real challenge. Uh, you, you, in order to ask people to pay more, it's really important that people understand where that money is going and, and what this banana is supporting. And it's a pretty radical concept. Uh, I think fair trade coffee has come a long way, fair trade chocolate, uh, but, but fair trade in bananas, is, it's, a, it's, it's really a, a necessity for a lot of people. So when we did that taste test, we were like, how can we get people to really, you know, you know, get to this message? I mean, we can make a poster, we can put up a sign, you know, we can whatever, but often the way people come to this conversation is around price. You know, why are these bananas 99 cents? Why are they 119? Why should I pay more for these? And it kind of gets into the, the politics and the trade behind this banana. So as I mentioned before, we buy exclusively from small farmers organized into co-ops. Much like local growers would not have done very particularly well without small stores or places like food co-ops or other places that fit their scale of production and allowed them to trade directly with stores and reach consumers that way, it's the same challenge for banana farmers in a remote place like Ecuador and Peru. So fair trade was designed both as a tool to link link producers with importing companies and eventually consumers and also open up that line of trade to have certain uh, securities. So basically, fair trade sets a minimum price for bananas, which which no importer can pay below. The price can certainly go above if the market dictates, but it cannot go below a certain minimum price. On top of that, $1 per 40-pound box goes back to the producer co-op in the form of a social premium. This is also part of fair trade. So every banana out there that you see with a fair trade seal or sticker, $1 per box back to the producers, minimum price paid for that box of bananas. So that already, now we've added some stability, some security, and a development fund, right? Now, this is sort of economic development through trade, not through aid or charity. So people are producing a product. They know how to produce bananas. They know how to export bananas. The co-ops themselves now have developed a second tier of jobs beyond just producers because now you need people that can do accounting paperwork, fair trade auditing paperwork, uh, logistics for export. So now there are jobs in the community that might not just be producer jobs. On top of that, when the bananas are imported here, 
we're audited uh, in terms of our purchases to make sure that we've paid that minimum price and the social premium. The co-ops themselves have to uh, report on what they spend the premium on. They democratically decide what it might be. It might be schools. It might be health care. It might be, you know, like basic, basic cost of living that we take for granted here, like funeral costs or retirement, um, some, almost a form of social security that the co-op is putting together for their members. Um, so it's really important because it's not just about money or trade. It's actually about development and democracy and, and, and not in a heavy-handed way. I mean, obviously, these co-ops know what they, what's needed in their community. Their members sort of have to hash out this democratic process uh, themselves, and then that money stays in the community. And for us, it's basically we have an ability to link a consumer here in the U.S. with a farmer in Ecuador, and there's a system of trust that's based along that supply chain. And the supply chain, in contrast to what I described before in terms of one giant multinational company owning everything, this is basically producers own their share, we own our share, we sell to independent distributors and produce ripeners who sell often to alternative stores like co-ops and natural food stores. So it's almost a completely alternative supply chain, and much of it is cooperatively based. So it's pretty crazy that and radical that it even works at all. Um, it's obviously challenging work and a billion things go wrong on a, on a daily basis, but it's, um, it, it is truly still radical and revolutionary, which I find so hard to believe. You know? <laughs> but it actually, it, it, there's still quite a need for it. All wrapped up in the banana. So, you know, I feel like for as long as I can remember that, you know, I go to the store to purchase a bunch of bananas, that they're they're more or less 99 cents. And that's been true, it seems like for, gosh, I don't know, like the last decade of my life, it seems like there it has been a price stability in bananas for longer than other fruits and vegetables. Is that just like, a, am I just like shopping at the same place and they haven't gotten up to speed or is that kind of how the banana market has held for a while? Well, and I, I think that, that this is also sort of back to when the market is dominated by five giant companies that are constantly competing with each other. You know, there's, there's been this constant race to the bottom on banana pricing. So if it's based on a system of large companies selling to large supermarket chains, now you sort of get into they're competing with each other and they might knock five cents off the price and, and get another five cents here. So often, you know, the price of conventional bananas – was anything like even probably three or four years ago, I was seeing them around like 39 cents a pound, 49 cents a pound, 29 cents a pound. I mean, really, really cheap for what you get. I mean, an average bunch of bananas is not even two pounds. So you're paying like 60 cents essentially for, you know, six or eight bananas, which is crazy. Um, I mean, nothing in the world has, has been that cheap. Maybe potatoes, but, you know, nothing else. I mean, now we see apple prices up to two ninety nine a pound, and people are buying them. But granted, now you have Honeycrisp, you have all these special varieties out there, and we're still dealing with, you know, sort of one variety of banana. But I would say what started to happen is the conventional price has started to, I've seen it raise in the past, um, say, two, three, four years, and now you start to see conventional bananas for like 59, 69, even 79 some places. But unfortunately, we've seen a cap on the organic price. So organic seems to be capped at 99 cents, and people often feel stores themselves 
there is this perception that the consumer, if the price of bananas goes above 99 cents, the stores often feel afraid that the consumer is going to look at that and think, wow, everything in this store is too expensive. If the bananas are 99 cents, I'm going to go shop somewhere else. Now, I personally feel that to be a myth. Um, I think that people understand uh, that the price of food is going up, the value you're still getting out of a bunch of bananas, even at 99 cents or 119 or 129, is still you're paying about you know two two dollars or 250 for six or eight bananas. Still pretty cheap, all in all. I mean, considering what health benefits the banana has, and you know it's in its own wrapper, it's good for kids, it runners, bikers. I mean, everybody understands the health of the health benefits of bananas, but the price has really not risen accordingly. And our main problem is also now you're you're getting organic and organic fair trade lumped in together. So organic doesn't pay the dollar social premium I was talking about. Organic doesn't have a base price that people can have confidence the producers all got a certain price in the market. So our work has been to differentiate the organic fair trade banana from the organic banana, but sometimes it's a problem of merchandising. You know, our store is going to have a conventional banana, an organic banana, and an organic fair trade banana? Probably not. They might have a conventional and an organic fair trade, and they kind of want to for the price of one at that point. Right. So I guess I've been shopping at organic banana stores uh, or stores that carry organic bananas. So what do we look for as a consumer? I mean, how do we know that we're picking the right uh, fruit? Well, you should generally there's a a seal um, on the bunch of bananas. There might be a brand seal, but then there's also a fair trade seal. And one of them is sort of a green and and black, like, swoopy uh, fair trade seal, which is the international seal. And the other one is kind of a, a, a sort of a figure of a person holding a basket, and that will also say fair trade. So when they say fair trade, everybody has to pay that minimum price and that premium. So consumers can look at that and have confidence. And you'll often find them at places, you know, I know in in Brooklyn alone where you're located, the Bushwick Food Co-op that's about to open would be carrying our bananas, you know, Green Hill, Park Slope, Flatbush, and then stores in the city like Integral Yoga, Dean and DeLuca's, like places that might be looking for an alternative for their customers and are places that that shoppers or members, if it's a co-op, would have confidence that they're helping to make these food choices for people, and that's why people shop there. Uh, And I think that's an important distinction because equal exchange has always been about cooperative supply chains. Most of our core customers are co-ops and natural food stores, and our products, we're hoping, are helping them to differentiate the food choices that people are making. And as we get more and more kind of depressed about some of the lack of food choices that are out there, I think there's a lot of exciting opportunities, too. We've seen with local, the local produce movement how, how amazing that has been for these types of stores because they have been able to provide, provide an alternative for shoppers. And I think the same goes for fair trade. Awesome. So I have a, a kind of a non-sequitur question, but something I'm thinking about just based on the conversation we had with your colleague on coffee last week. Um, are, but do, do people who grow bananas eat bananas? Interesting. Um, you know, a lot of people eat green bananas because there's such, you know, there's such a, a the culling process uh, to, to take out the ones that don't quite uh, match the standard. You know, there's a, there's a lot of that. So there's definitely green banana dishes, and people do eat a fair amount of bananas in country. I, I, what I didn't, what I don't see or haven't seen in my travels that. Uh, 
that is sort of hard and depressing for me is I don't see a lot of, like, kitchen gardens, you know, where people will, they all live in sort of a village area. Their banana farms or fields are not far from where they live. But I don't see a lot of, like, gardens where people are growing, you know, tomatoes or other things. You might see other crops grown along with bananas, like rice in some of the irrigated off areas or, as I said, citrus or cocoa in the more mountainous areas. But, you know, there isn't a ton of diversity in the diet. And, you know, these are still very poor countries. And uh, we're hoping that through fair trade and and having some stability uh, that that people's standard of living and, and food choices can actually be a little bit better. Um, but my colleague, Jessica, who works with me, is a dietitian, and um, I think it was also hard for her to see that. Um, I saw more of it in West Africa than I think I've seen here um, in Central and South America, which is always surprising to me. Because there's irrigation, there's methods, but I think, you know, you just go to these countries and it's just like bananas, 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 bananas everywhere you go, just fields and fields and fields. And it makes you understand, you know, what a challenge it is to grow organically in the midst of that and what a challenge it is to do something alternative with probably a 100 years of uh, banana history in these areas and, and not a lot of empowerment to the growers themselves. Well, we're definitely looking to to support Equal Exchange and their work to change that. And I want to thank you so much for um, helping kind of peel back the story of bananas with us today. It's been my pleasure. I appreciate you having me on the show, Erin. Awesome. So if you want to learn more, you want to follow up on the banana conversation, definitely visit them, www.beyondthepeel.com. This show, like all 30 of our live weekly programs, are available as a free download through iTunes. You can find us on Stitcher Smart Radio. We hope you'll come to our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. If you like what you hear, please consider clicking that Donate tab and becoming a member today. Uh, Tune in next week for another episode of The Farm Report. And stay tuned, because up next we've got the Grow NYC Market Update. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Music for the Farm Report is provided courtesy of Obesity. Thanks for listening.